When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello and welcome to episode 220 of What Most People Think and I join you following, so I'm recording on the Monday afternoon following a mammoth stint on tour where I was pretty pleased with myself because I had gigs in Cardiff, uh, Swindon, Bristol and Exeter and I pitched up in a Travelodge just in Swindon, right? Travelodge in Swindon, it already sounds pretty sort of as low as you can go in terms of sort of comfort, luxury and environment. And then as I was checking in to the Travelodge, there was a little sign saying that don't open the windows because pigeons might fly in. And you just think of the Travelodge experience, how could they raise the bar again? But they, they just find ways of doing it. And, and, and joining me this week to co-host is a man who will know plenty about life on the road and budget hotels is Simon Evans. Simon, what sort of level do you invest in hotel-wise when you're on the road? Well, I generally just look on like booking.com or somewhere to see what's going cheap around. And if it is a Travelodge, that's fine. But I've got to say, the Travelodge is not always the most bargain level at the moment, is it? There's, there's, they mm. seem to have had a bit of a hike in there, but quite often being asked three digits for Travelodge, which I do bulk at. Um, and it does depend, obviously, whether you are, as you say, staying there for a few nights. I stayed in one in Oakhampton in Devon uh, three nights just before the pandemic came down. I remember it still. And I thought, oh, Oakhampton, that sounds nice. It was like a truck stop. And uh, it was just the most dismal. I felt like Alan Partridge, you know, in his, in his <laughs> Norfolk, you know, just like, is this what my life has come to? They get to know you at the subway. Uh, I mean, to be honest, if, if you've got anything like half decent numbers on tour, I think it is probably worth investing in decent hotels. But it's easy to say that in a podcast when the finger hovers over the mouse, you know, it's, it's <laughs> when the it's finger just... hovers over the mouse. Yeah. That moment. I mean, I'll say this four nights, two sixty all in for four nights. So I felt yeah. pretty good. That's with, that's with Wi-Fi. Yeah. I mean, one thing it did say, which I thought was fairly ambitious is in the lift, it had a poster saying, make this your new cocktail hotspot. Cause it had a bar. I thought that's ambit. Like even in the wildest dreams of the Travelodge board, the idea that anyone, the first thing they'd think of for a cocktail uh, is a Travelodge. I remember, I can't remember where it was, but I think it was somewhere like Northamptonshire, going to a service station, getting a McDonald's and becoming aware that there were people there who worked at McDonald's, but were there on their night off. Right, that that was still their social area, a service station that was uh, that was the main, and they had walked there across the open fields and then sort of clamp, you know, clambered over the barriers. Yeah, was, taking their chances on a dual carriageway yeah. as well. There are towns like there are towns like that where you feel like it is the hotspot. You know, like those places you see in fifties American films where the, the 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 bikers would all tip up. There are there are bits of the East Midlands where McDonald's does represent yeah. that. Look, this is what most people think. This is the show that is not afraid to talk about what, what, what's real to people. What's real to people is budget hotels and, and, and McDonald's. This is the world we live in. But also, you know, politically, we'll go to areas that perhaps some other uh, comedy doesn't tend to go to quite as often. Just a reminder in terms of how the po- podcast is funded, that as of next week, I think, there will be adverts, all right? The sh- I'm shamelessly, I didn't know this, Simon, I'm shamelessly taking the corporate shilling. Um, but... 
well there's no buts I just want the money Let's, I, I can I can afford to be honest that's the good thing about not being a left wing comic because I can just say <laughs> oh, me, and, me and my agent want to earn a bit more money out of this but it's really important to say that the Patreon it would still be exclusively ad free via Patreon we're going to have a way of delivering it into your podcast provider you're going to get it early you're going to get it ad free and you're going to get it uh, a bit of extra content basically the things that I tend to edit out at the last minute because I'm, I'm a coward right so those things will stay in the Patreon only thing and, and just last week, the first what most people think breaking news went out, and that's going to be part of the, the new deal. I mean, who is it? So that was that Clement Attlee, the new deal. Was was that the him? New deal is FDR Roosevelt, 1932. The new, sorry, the other side of the pond, right? So FDR, I, I've appropriated that, but for slightly improved podcast delivery. <laughs> that's, a, that's a slipping into, that was what is still regarded as America's slow slide into socialism, Jeff. So you've got to be careful with the new deal. I don't think that's quite the terminology you want, no. Yeah, but just in terms of scale, Simon, like he was trying to get America back on its feet after the Great Depression, and I'm offering one to two shorter versions of the podcast a month extra. So I think... I, I think fair, it's a good Os- Oswald Mosley was very much in favour of the New Deal at that time as well. You know, it was, okay, it was right. Sort of <laughs> oh, I'm really, I'm really glad you well, not really glad you mentioned Oswald Mosley, but there was a really interesting thing after the Conservative Party conference last week. I don't know if you saw Penny Morden, who big fan of, and I have to say, and I know you shouldn't comment, but her hair looked even better than usual, uh, gave a speech. Now, the speech itself might have been all right, but what most people have seen was the last minute and a half, whereby she tried to seemingly... Yes, yeah, Simon's pointing right now. She did this weird pointing thing, and and she seemed to try to improvise a Shakespearean riff um, on the spot, like you know, once more into the breach, that sort of thing. Except it wasn't really clear exactly what she was talking about, and she had this pointy finger thing. And there was, I saw this online. There was a guy that used to work for government that put a picture of Pen, uh, Penny Morden pointing her finger. Did you see this one? Next to Oswald Mosley, and basically said, "This isn't a coincidence." I thought it yeah. fucking is, mate. I think they, I think people just have fingers and they point for emphasis. I think, to be honest, he was almost flattering her rhetorical gifts, wasn't he, really? I mean, it, it was extraordinary. She seemed to be trying to evoke the, the, um, the, the, the Spartacus scene, you know. If you stand up, somebody, the person next to you will stand up, and before you know it, the whole street stands up, and then other nations stand up, and then we're all standing up, and then what? You know, she had nowhere to go mm. with it. There was no, It was not obvious what we were standing up for. If she had said... But there are a lot of there's a lot of nonsense been talked in the last few years that everyone knows is nonsense but is afraid of saying so, and and you've got to, you've got to take a risk and stand up and say I'm sorry but that's nonsense. I mean I have some views about you know things from like masks you know let alone uh, more recent culture hmm. war type issues. I think it's a fair point. You know it does take somebody to to be the first to stand up and you are surprised sometimes. There are there are some non political actors in the past who've said you'll be amazed. If you take that first confident step, if you make that first leap, the universe will conspire to support your plans. But she just had no content to it at all, did she? It was purely about the action, purely about the dynamic and nothing about what it is you're supposed to be standing up for. I mean, the same to be like, you know, (laughs) to go on to very thin ice, but the same could have been said for, yes, quite bad things, you know. You could, mm. you might be the first person to say, "Well, I think we should send them all back." Yeah, I agree. And before you know it, you've got a, you know, you've got a rally. I mean, you've got to make clear what what it is you want yes. people to stand and she up may for. Have, and she may have done so elsewhere in her speech, but I think that at the point where you're going for your rhetorical flourish at the end, you've got to be, have enough savvy to know. Well, that's the bit that will yeah. be the clip. So, in the yeah. bit that will be the clip, say the fucking thing that's relevant. New patrons, uh, new patrons. We've got Tim, who I don't know if Tim liked the idea of there being extra uh, breaking news episodes, but he's shown his support by upgrading to uh, VIP. Cheers for that, Tim. And remember, if you are a VIP patron, you get a guaranteed question in each month's uh, monthly um, Patreon-only uh, episode. I don't know why that was so fucking hard for me to say. Um, and then we've got Jamie Caldwell as a new patron, who I just think sounds like a, 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 a sort of resilient Scottish centre-back, Jamie Caldwell. Jamie Caldwell, yeah. Caldwell is a very eminent uh, right-wing uh, American political commentator, Christopher Caldwell. Don't know if he's in relation to him, 
but he may have a son who plays right back as well. You know, and he, he might track back at corners as well. You know, those centre backs that deign to come back and defend at corners. I always admire those guys. John Fashionu for Wimbledon would grace us with his presence in the in the box sometimes. It's one of the yeah, it's one of the advantages of watching a match live, isn't it? Compared to on the telly, is you get to understand who's working hard. I've always thought that there's there's pluses <laughs> and so minuses returning to life, but you can tell yeah. if you go to the match. Yeah, you think yeah, he's putting in the hours. Well, you, you, you get that, don't you? Sometimes you get a pundit saying that, oh, he worked his socks off. Um, and, and you don't really know what that means. I remember once seeing Emil Heskey live and just thinking, whatever his frailties as a striker, he, he scares the life out of the defenders. You could just see physically what a pain in the arse there was for them to, them to have this physical presence next to them. And actually, yeah. just uh, while we've sort of segued into football, um, there was, uh, I think, a patron, sorry, I can't remember your name, but asked me to mention Kevin Keegan. I don't know if you saw that Keegan said that he didn't like uh, ladies comment, uh, commentating on the men's game. And there was, I mean, let's firstly be uh, commensurate with what's happened. There was a, a mild to medium hoo-ha about it. And I sort of thought, are we at the point where we can just allow him to maybe think that, perhaps? Like, it's he doesn't have any influence. He's not the puppet master of domestic and international football. Like, if there's an older guy that just doesn't, who prefers there to be men commentating on men, is it okay that he just thinks that? Well... Actually, I saw the whole context of the speech. Uh, it was a thing we covered on Headliners, funny enough, and so I did read a, the full-length article, and he had a lot of good things to say about women's football. He was very encouraging. Genuinely, it felt like he was sincere about it. He thought it had been a, a great development, and it was. he thought also he was quite happy to see a female commentator on the panel on Match of the Day discussing men's football. What The only thing he was really complaining about was the idea that certain veteran players from the women's game might think that they had a... an authentic view about what they would have done in a certain situation or what mistake had been made. And he was saying it's quite a different game. It's not the same game because there's a lot more violence. There's a lot more physical force on the field when the men are playing. It happens more quickly, you know. And at the moment, those are just statistical realities. I know a lot of people who do actually prefer the women's game at the moment because they say the Premier League has become boring because... Teams are so well drilled, they're so well coached, they're so incredibly fit, they do track back so quickly. You know, you have so many matches which just have a low score line and all all the attacks are closed down. There's actually a lot to be said for the fact that there's a few cracks in the women's game where the light gets in, you know. But I think his point was a much more nuanced one. He wasn't just going, oh, this trying to get women involved, it's a lot of nonsense. He wasn't like a 72-year-old pub bore in the manor, it was quite nuanced. But also, he is a 70-year-old man, and, uh, you know, yes, of course he should be entitled to speak his mind. There's a, a running theme there, obviously, we've explored over many occasions. Yeah, I mean, I, I just thought, it's. I think it's okay that he thinks that, because I think that him thinking that isn't likely to change anything. If you think about the people involved in television and broadcasting, the idea that anything is going to change the direction that they've got mapped out for representation, and if, the, if that thing was going to be Kevin fucking Keegan, I'd be very, very surprised. There is a point I should just make about the, the podcast here, is a couple of patrons have asked about advertising, and will there be any interference with guests? I think I should have covered that, actually, before. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, obviously, I'm gonna. That was a big part of the discussions I've had with this podcast provider. And if there's any sense of that, um, it's not going to be. You know, it's not going to be a thing that I could continue. I need to have freedom and, and non-intervention. And the great thing about these guys is the people that they work with are stand-ups. And I think anybody who works with stand-ups understands that. You know, when your podcasts are all about just shooting from the hip, and and and, uh, and a lot of the podcasts they have already. Uh, sort of demonstrate an understanding of that. So I can promise people that I will not hesitate in terms of who, who I'm going to book. Look, I've got, I've got the controversial fucking edgelord Simon Evans. Jesus. Fox adjacent. Okay, the main talking point. Now, uh, David, the main super patron for the show, he picks up from stuff from last week. I was speaking to Andrew Doyle. I don't, I don't, first up, Simon, I don't know how you feel about the abbreviation of calling someone Andrew Drew. I, I was really against it. I just, It's just not a good word. It's not a good noun. When I hear the word Drew, I think of Barrymore, probably. Well, that yeah, that's not so bad. That's not yeah, yeah, that's odd that that was her name. I never really considered that. Well, well, David Demain he pointed out that Liam comes from William. I did not know that. New knowledge no. for Jeff. Yeah. Uh, Beth from Elizabeth. I think I knew that, but had forgotten. Tilly for Natalie. Again, didn't know that. Lottie oh, well, for Charlotte. For loads for Elizabeth in the old days, weren't there? And Margaret used to be Peggy. Mm, my nan, my nan was, my nan was called Peggy. 
Yeah. My nan and granddad were called Peggy and Reg. If anything sounds like two East End villains with a couple of shooters under the bar, I mean they were they weren't like that. They were they were they were they were probably the opposite. But it's made me think about names as well. Now you mentioned um, Elizabeth there. I was thinking, on the other hand, what is the most versatile name that you can get enough get the most names out of? And I thought Catherine because Catherine could be Kath, Katie, fucking Kitty. Is, is there any more? Is that that's a good question for the podcast listeners? What most people think UK at gmail.com. Is there a name that you can get more different variations of uh, than Catherine? I, I, I can't think of any, and I realize that I have gone very FM radio here, mate. I will get back on track um, in, a, in a second. Um, I'm afraid there's more people trying to work out what the deliberate uh, mistake was in the audiobook. What I'm finding so, Simon, there's a deliberate mis- there's a deliberate blooper left in the audiobook, and I said anybody that works it out can have two free tickets for the tour in 2024. What's happened is no one has got the blooper I thought, but they just highlighted loads of fuck ups that uh, were there uh, anyway. Uh, is this supposed to be like the A to Z map has a deliberate? There's a road in the A to Z map that doesn't exist, so they know if people have just copied it and, and without copyright. Well, I didn't know that, but yes, that is it. That is exactly what it is. But yes, all it's yes. really uh, drawn attention to is how ill-informed I have and, and, and lax I am and unprofessional it's I am. So it's a book of opinions, isn't it? It's not a book of, of facts, anyway, is it? Or is it? Well, it's about it's a, it's about the experience of being a bloke in it. Obviously, I I just say a lot of things that weren't accurate. I mean, it's on the <laughs> most basic. <laughs> what is a bloke? Well, he has three penises, blue blood. <laughs> Yes, yes. I think so. What, what was it? Well, I'll give you an example of the one that Colin sent in. He said in the chapter on Harry and, and Meghan, eh? so it's got its edgy moments. Uh, you refer yeah. to Harry as being second in line to the throne, which he never was. He peaked at being third behind his dad and brother. I mean, that is fucking huge. That is embarrassing. Yeah, and also, if you have a chapter in about the British bloke and you've got a chapter about Harry and Meghan, it should have simply said, the British bloke does not care about Harry and Meghan. But, you know, I can get exercised, I think. Maybe it's more, maybe it's more, there should be a book about being the kind of, what I see myself at is as like a diet gammon or perhaps. So in my gammon mode, I could get upset, upset about those things. Diet gammon, that's something your um, your detractors would say, isn't it? Like a meat-free gammon, like you'd be in an M&S sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, a really unsatisfying gammon. Like you go there thinking, well, at least I'm going to have gammon. You go, well, this isn't very salty. This is, this is some weird carrot-based matter. What most people think. We're going to do a quick thank you and a fuck you, just just quickly uh, with mine. So obviously I've been trying to continue the discussion about men's mental health and suicide, and um, I reached out to a few left-wing publications because I thought, Simon, it would be nice to not go to my usual places to reach out across the divide for this to show that it's a... Uh, it's a thing we should all be invested in. And uh, they've all just uh, ghosted me or just said fuck off, essentially. Um, but fair play to Joe Politics UK, joe.co.uk. Uh, and I mentioned, you know, right after all this happened, that Ava, before even the controversy happened, Ava had reached out and said that she wanted to have, you know, a, a sort of constructive further conversation about it. So I will be doing that this Friday. So don't be surprised, but I'm sure that when that chat does go out, everyone will presume that it was all orchestrated. I don't know. Do you reckon that'll probably happen, won't it, Simon? That it's all been choreographed from the start. Do you know what? I, I, obviously, I wouldn't imagine it was, but there are there have been some tr- political trajectories over the last few years that you go, how did that come about from that? And funnily enough, Lawrence Fox is one mm. of them. I mean, that one encounter he had with that woman on Question Time, I hadn't even yeah. been aware of him as an actor before that. And this has all come from that, essentially. It is extraordinary. Sometimes you just think, you know, maybe something good will come out of it. I'll tell you what, though, I did watch your Politics Live um, interview, uh, certainly before, not live, but before it became controversial. And I still think it was that the trade union woman who was most at fault, uh, her her idea about bash, you know, I thought was vastly more offensive than anything that Ava Evans had to say. So I'm slightly, still slightly perplexed how it sort of, well, no, no, I, th- I think it that... becomes commentary about commentary, but... You watched that interview back. I thought she was unbelievable. And she is a senior figure, you know, in, in representing a very large and august institution full of blokes with, with mental health issues. Yeah, I did. I've got to be honest. I thought that it was strange. Like the people that, that watched it live and a lot of people that watched the whole clip, a lot of people did look at that interaction. I think the mm. problem with that was it almost seemed to be 
I was sort of confused because I was like, are, are you trivialising this? Are you, are you t- like, ba- bash, of all words, like blokes against sexual harassment, fair enough, but that does form the word bash. Bash is a commonly accepted euphemism for either violence or wanking. So I did think, I thought, honestly, at that point, I thought I was in some fucking bizarre parallel universe. I, I was genuinely it was, it was like It was genuinely like a Chris Morris sketch, you know, fucked and bombed or something. It was, it was just weird. But anyway... <laughs> It was. Um, uh, speaking of fucked, uh, Simon, your fuck you for this week. Well, obviously there's one fairly major candidate, but I don't want to get embroiled in that right now. So um, I thought I might go for Owen Jones uh, for his, his interviews at the Tory party conference and in particular for his attempt to uh, humiliate that uh, that young lad that spoke out and contextualised Enoch Powell. I thought that was a very interesting conversation. I don't know if probably all of your patrons have seen it. It was shared widely on Twitter. But there is just something, my God, so annoying about Jones. It was lovely to see him. And I don't want to use the language of YouTube, you know, get owned or destroyed or devastated or blown to, you know. He was just put onto his back foot for a moment and he quickly rebounded, of course. His his self-confidence and self-esteem knows no bounds. But I I think just to give a bit of sort of background to what happened. So it was quite a young Tory. So when it started, you thought, well, this will be, you know, and the thing about Owen, you know, I'd sort of work with him and he's very well briefed and, and he's he's got great sort of pace and tempo to what he says. So it can sort of, you know, it can really discombobulate people. So you thought, yeah. oh, young Tory, Owen on form and up on his toes, this is going to go one way. But the lad managed to somehow keep his composure. Um, you know, obviously private school is good for something, eh? It was a good advert for private school in a weird way that probably Owen well, wouldn't have appreciated. If you assume he went to one, which is a fair assumption, but it's still only an assumption, I think. He... um. He held frame, which is a term people use in these things, you know. He didn't allow Owen to define the terms. He he held he held frame, he held the terms, he made his he made clear what he was saying. And um and you're right, Owen Jones relies an enormous amount on the speed. he's like a you know, a Gatling gun. Is that I think that's the type, you know, a machine gun anyway. Mm. It's just like just like a hail of bullets come at you and and, and a snarky tone and a kind of a suggestion that surely you can't be saying that because that would absolutely suggest that you're a racist. And um, and it was just really encouraging to see that. Having said that, I suppose it's not a fuck you because he was actually he was fuck you. But uh, <laughs> but it was it's one that stuck in my mind. He put the interview up and I don't know whether he did that in the spirit of fair play or he actually in his mind it had gone way or the other. But, you know, he's obviously been on the podcast before. So if he becomes aware of this chat, he's always welcome to come back on and put his side of things. All right, let's talk about politics first. Uh, we will be talking about actually, you know, what's happened, been happening uh, in Israel. But first up, we're going to start with the Labour Party conference. Okay, so just before we get into that, there was a big interview with uh, Keir Starmer with Victoria Derbyshire, and she's so good at interviewing. I thought it was a quietly devastating interview where she just. the lack of ego there which allows her to take it places that are sort of quietly revealing and and one thing I did realise throughout the course of the interview is that Keir Starmer has a basic structure to his responses which is point one identify a problem everyone would think is a problem like growth okay growth we need growth good point we always need growth okay point two is the plan which is, I'm going to have more growth. We're going to make the economy bigger, right? You've got every right-minded person. You think, this is all good. Where's it going? And then point three, how are you going to do it? And then he always reverts to point one. And he'll just go back to point one. Then he'll toy between point one and point two. And I suppose, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in his speech, how much he's willing to commit to. And a lot of people quite rightly say he doesn't have to do a great deal. But this probably maybe the only weakness of him is that he arguably stands for for nothing currently. I mean, did you see his word cloud, Simon? You know, a lot of politicians are confronted with their word cloud. Have you seen this? I haven't seen his. Were, were you aware of the phenomenon, right, of word clouds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they were, as a comic, we would be fucking devastated by that if they said we had a focus <laughs> group. <laughs> and it said, and we asked like all these people about your view, and the the big words are the most common ones, and then we would just see like twat, not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it would go for the set or, or for the conversation generally. I would imagine mm. the thing with Starmer, you, you're absolutely right. He has to basically avoid making a terrible error now. 
I think most people have sort of accepted and accommodated the fact that he's not a terribly exciting, charismatic politician, but they are obviously yeah. just sick and tired of the Tories. And um, I mean, things can go wrong. But yes, of course, any policy is always a much riskier uh, proposition than simply identifying a problem or indeed identifying a Tory failure. How we how we will achieve growth in a in a an economy where the main priority at the moment seems to be like still net zero and and still uh, completely failing to tackle the productivity crisis we've had for decades in this country and the number of people who haven't gone back to work since COVID and you know there are some really really serious issues that I haven't seen either party really confronting or talking about how they're going to tackle them and do anything about them you know. Productivity is 20% that of France, you know, let alone look at America. I mean, we're sliding into, you know, we're sliding out of the top league in terms of the economy, in terms of productivity, in terms mm. of uh, whether it be industry or, or uh, there's, there's, there are some upsides, but there are some extremely important issues that need confronting. And I've been as guilty as anyone else of talking about cultural stuff. But, you know, to be honest, we're comedians. We're the sort of people who should talk about that. You know, the MP should be sort of tackling some of the bigger issues. And that stuff would just melt away. If we had 3% growth every year, you would not mm. be hearing very much about transsexuals in bathrooms. You know, that really wouldn't bother people. I mean, and the productivity point as well is just ask yourself this question. Just like on a spider senses, your, your own personal take, does it feel like many people that you know are working that fucking hard? Does it feel like since COVID, even the people that went back to work fully fucking went back to work? Maybe they took four fifths of themselves back to work and maybe actually in the t- context of their week, they're only physically there two thirds of the week, maybe, or, or two days out of, out of five. It's not, it, this is my one thing I've been t- saying on tour is it's kind of frustrating is this economy could be bouncing. Like literally you take this anemic growth. If you could get people back into the workplace you could get productivity up actually somehow that fucking like that that promised land of three percent isn't unreasonable but it's a really hard discussion to have isn't it because i suppose whatever party takes it on you're essentially being critical of human beings the tories you know they've got enough nasty party stuff coming at them the labor party are already got enough critics on the left but what you've really got to say is people need to fucking pull their socks up and put in a shift you're right, but of course, adults know that you know humans on mass respond to incentives. We're all grown up enough to understand that, and governments need to create incentives to work. They need to create incentives to put in a full shift to show up at the office. They need to create, and obviously, those include disincentives. You know, they need to look at where the the benefits are going, but also just to encourage people to behave in a way that benefits the whole by making it worthwhile for them. And at the moment, the tax system, the tax uh, corporation tax, you know, I'm, I'm unapologetic in saying that Liz Truss had a lot of good ideas. She absolutely exploded a bomb in the markets. And I don't, I'm not surprised that there was a coup to get rid of her. But, you know, you've got to encourage people to work rather than just think you can redistribute, you know, the wealth that is being created and make everything better. And there is there's very little appetite for that on either side at the moment. I don't think it's a problem to say to people, we've got to get back to work. OK, so into this, right, we've identified the problems. Thank God today, Rachel Reeves stood up. This is this is who is going to stimulate Britain back into those top leagues. And I'm just going to go through some of the headline figures from her speech. First up, it was a slightly fluffy speech. And I don't mean fluffy as in, like, in terms of tone. She just made a lot of fuck-ups, you know. And there must be that point with the Labour Party now where it's like, you know when you're doing it, when you're having a great gig, I often feel more anxious than when I'm having a bad one. It's because it's like surfing. You're like, right, I'm on the wave. The only thing you can do once you're on it is fall off it. The effort of getting on the wave is something to focus your mind. And she certainly looked, she certainly looked like uh, every inch the nervous surfer. Um, she spoke about a, a fiscal lock for the OBR. Now, I was in a Weatherspoons earlier, and that was a, a lot of the chat around the uh, bottomless coffee and tea was when are we going <laughs> to fiscally lock the OBR down that we have to that we can't change economic policy without the OBRs say so. Um, so the OBR obviously for for centrists it's a uh, it's a bit sexy, isn't it? The idea of experts, even though a lot of their shit has been, well, it's been very inaccurate. Um, non-dom status. Now, they keep on talking about non-dom status. I don't know how many times they've spent the money that they're going to earn from the non-dom, <laughs> from the tightening yeah. of non-dom rules. You can only do it once, right? That not that the point? Like in, in terms of a big chunk of revenue, you can only pull that trick once. 
I absolutely agree. And also, it smacks a little bit, I know it's tired, but a little bit of the politics of envy. I mean, we have to think, was London a better place when there were non-doms swanning around? Obviously, the Russian invasion exposed that, um, where a lot of them was, it was filthy money. It had been keeping property prices in Chelsea ridiculously high, you know, and hollowing mm. out some of the older, nicer parts of West London. But reality is, you've got to try and think, I mean... You've got to have a vision of what you want London to be, which is slightly separate from what you want the rest of the country to be. And non-DOM is very much a London concern. In fact, it's a, it's it's like the ULED zone. In fact, it's smaller. Do you know what I mean? It's probably like about four or five boroughs, really. We, for years now, for decades, London and, and Britain have had two separate economies, you know, and no, ne- never more so than since HS2 was cancelled. There's, there's no real intent to level up. There's no real plan to sort of smear London's... Uh, vast wealth and uh, and international reputation and, and prestige, you know, to sort of spread that up and down across the slice of the country. They're two very separate economies. And, and to be honest, London probably benefits from just making itself as appealing as possible to the wealthiest people in the world. It's a bit like starting out in in the world, you know, at university or whatever. It's as much about filling your contacts book and, and just sort of, you know, creating a brand for yourself. And I think London was probably better like that. We all know how good a, a, a massive success story in many ways. Obviously, compromise when you look at the detail. Uh, Ireland, as in air, air has has been by by making itself incredibly tax efficient for the for the uber rich. But what? So what then is? Are we advocating here? You know, when people often say, instead of drug testing everybody at the Olympics, let's just take let them take all the drugs and see who wins. Instead of taxing non-dom states, let's just make London this absolute sort of right wing. Uh, Nirvana without any and just see what the fuck happens and, and say that you can't do that anywhere else in the country but let's just see how much wealth uh, we we can we can attract in I mean it's just it's so on a localised level again you, you know I, I often come at things and just think right, what are my immediate examples I know a few very wealthy people I know two recently very wealthy that have gone to live in other countries because of what's happening and the changes in tax laws and and some people might think well you know fuck them and and you know if they don't want to contribute fine but those people are gone now and those people are buying their their yachts in other countries and those people are are, are paying their masseuses in in other countries and the problem is it's not a great time to talk about trickle down effect because it's been largely sort of discredited it's not it, totally it's on a, not on a f- i agree with you it's not trickle down which incidentally was never a term used by people who advocated it's supply side economics or whatever it's not trickle down in terms of you know we get the money that they spend it's more about the energy they create those people and yes i think it's quite an interesting idea having a sort of sanctuary city but for in a libertarian sense rather than a sort of illegal immigrant and, and drug user sense I mean, maybe, I mean, to some extent, that's what the square mile is. Of course, there are different laws that apply to the square mile yeah. and there are all kinds of weird underground channels that take you straight to the Cayman Islands and stuff. So to some extent, London has always benefited from that. But I do think, you know, it should that's the kind of internationalist act, activity that you do want to see. I do understand why people look at a company like Amazon who have sort of decimated our high street. I mean, I use Amazon all the time. I'm totally guilty, but I am aware. And I live in Brighton, which has a relatively healthy set of little independent shops and so on. But we need to think, I think, quite clearly about what we want our high streets to look like because they're not coming back in their old form. And they are dismal. Mm. And I think they lower everyone's sense of living in a thriving country. And it would be much nicer if they could be pedestrianised and just full of coffee shops, frankly, if that's what it's going to be. Maybe that's what it should be. I don't know. But... But we have to think about uh, Amazon is separate from just the sense that there are clever, dynamic internet. There are digital nomads now. They exist. And if we make it attractive for them to be in London rather than Paris, Singapore or Dublin, then the country as a whole will benefit, I think, because they aren't going to say, oh, well, I'll still stay in London despite them now charging me tax. London isn't that much more appealing than Paris, you know. If 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 you no, if, if no. we could have a total embargo on all of these measures across the world, great. But we won't have. There will always be Dubai. There will always be Singapore. You know, there or, will always... or Dublin, Dubai yeah, or Dublin. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> isn't it incredible how how the 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 Irish has managed to put off put, pull off this cultural and economic masterstroke, whereby they get to be perceived in 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 one way, like if. But sort of like Singapore-style tax rates on a... I wonder how long it will be, actually. I wonder how long before 
the EU. I mean, one, you always felt in a way that the UK raising corporation tax to 25% was some sort of backdoor sop to the EU, because one of their big fears is of having this, this very competitive nation on their kind of Western border. I just wonder how long it will be before other countries in the EU look at Ireland and go, how comes they get to do that or, or, or till jealousy starts to fester? I would love to see a bit of jealousy festering or envy. Yeah, I think Ireland is a strange case. Obviously, it's been through an extraordinary revolution. In my lifetime, it's gone from being a medieval theocracy, you know, not far different from Iran, you know, in large Mm. parts, um, to being one of the most liberal, woke, liberal democracies, you know, and uh, and, and economically, it's just been absolutely revolutionised. But yeah, it is, it is an extra, I would stop short of calling it hypocrisy, but you know, it wasn't long ago that Dublin relied on stag parties, you know, to remain economically viable. Now, it's just incredible. Uh, it's, uh, There's probably some very smart article in in, uh, in Time magazine called From Stag Do's to Deutsche Bank, the yeah, economic yeah. miracle of Ireland. <laughs> We're just going to do a quick hype here. There are a couple more patrons to mention. Daniel Reeves. That's quite a cool name. Dan Reeves. You'd definitely go. You'd definitely be Dan Reeves rather than Daniel Reeves. In the same way, I'm, I'm really Jeffrey Norcott. There's just some, there's certain configurations of names that you would stick with. Uh, Nick, who is a patron, who, as usual, when patrons do their, their run, they boot people out. But Nick, thank you for making sure that your account was still active. A guy who's called himself Mr. Stephen Richard. He's added the Mr. there. Uh, so does that, is, is that, does that denote a qualification, perhaps? There is, isn't there a qualification that is denoted by Mr.? Stephen Richard, was it? Yeah, so Mr. Yeah. What, do, maybe, is, what does Mr.? Well, maybe he's self-conscious about that he has two Christian names, so he feels that Mr. sort of like adds a sort of weighted, like a surname balance, you know, so you understand. It's not Stephen and Richard. Mr. Stephen Richard. Mr. Stephen Richard. And I've also got this nagging feeling, Simon, that there is a qualification that is denoted by being a Mr. of something. Anyway, uh, what most people you uh, people think UK at Gmail. What most people think, UK at gmail.com. And David Domain can obviously chime in on that. And just one more name here, Patrick Cronin, which for me is your absolute kind of Danish crime author. Patrick Cronin, the new Patrick, the number immediate Times bestseller. There's always those words, it's immediate, inevitable, Times best, sudden Times bestseller. Um, so, yeah, he's probably got a, a, a cool topic called The Web of Gunfire or one of these other fucking innumerable <laughs> books about murdering people. Um, tour dates, 2024, moving the emphasis a lot towards 2024 as most of the autumn dates are sold out. Uh, Middlesbrough, Manfield, Southport, Ipswich. These are some of the bigger rooms I've got to feel. Uh, Shrewsbury, Reading, Crawley Crew, and of course the additional London date at Wimbledon Theatre, the Mecca. Fuck, fuck the Apollo, Simon. Everyone says, oh, I want to play the Apollo one day. I want to do Wimbledon Theatre again. I just want to keep doing it because it's where I saw Christopher Biggins as a child and, and the, the, the honour of being out of grace, the same sta- stage as Sandra Dickinson and I think Leslie Grantham once upon a time. It's a lovely theatre. I, I remember playing it a couple of years ago. It is a wonderful theatre. I, I fully endorse that. Some places have a deep, deep history. Very satisfying. Sounds like you've got a great tour there. Well, I mean, like, it, the thing is, as you know, is spring legs. Autumn leg, there's that pent-up demand and stuff like that. The spring leg is where you're sort of going, right, where, where, how far does this demand extend? When you're doing a tour show in the autumn in Stockton, then you've got another one in Middlesbrough, um, then we, I guess we will see. Uh, with yourself, uh, you're out touring at the moment, I understand. Yeah, I've got dates for the rest of autumn. They can find that on my website, thesimonevans.com, um, and spring dates announced soon, but don't have them uh, announced yet. So uh, they're putting that schedule together, hopefully. I thought, thought for some reason you were saying they're putting that shit together. I thought you were going to go really straight on me for some reason. Right, we're just going to talk about um, what's been happening in Israel now. So just trust me, you're not getting, certainly for me, you're not going to get the most evolved or informed take on this. But it feels like, you know, when you talk about what most people think, it would be impossible not to mention. And of course, a lot of people's emotional reactions to this will be social media based because they will be based on things that they saw on social media, which stopped them in their tracks and horrified them. And then, I guess, responses that probably arguably also stopped them in their tracks and horrified them. And I just think that, you know, when you enter this debate, Simon, and you're, you're probably way more informed than me, is that you can understand that it has a complex history. But I think if your first reaction to seeing, you know, uh, 
bodies being de- corpses being desecrated, uh, children being taken as hostages. If you're not horrified by that, I, I just think I'm. Yeah, I, I think that was, has, that should go without saying. But you cannot help but notice. Well, I suppose again, it depends what kind of time frame we're talking about. But in the last ten or fifteen years, you notice more voices, sometimes with an alarmingly high follower count, do feel able to, as they would see it, contextualise that horror and 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 affirm that they stand with Palestine, or that they are uh, that they are committed to liberating Palestine that uh, you know the uh, the illegal occupation blah 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 that they immediately go to that there seem to me to be a lot more people including to be honest within our own industry who feel able to make that point immediately rather than simply just express you know a, a human lament for the for the horror that has been sustained by civilian communities I mean, so one of the the sort of the reasons that people would give for that style of reaction is the you know what's been going on um, in Gaza, uh, the conditions that people there there live under, and 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 the argument that's sometimes made is that you've got to look at, I mean, Hamas are a prescribed terrorist organisation you know, by international standards, but yeah. you think all right, well, so the argument is is that that this is essentially a military operation in response to what is seen as an oppressive and occupying. Um, but even if you view it right, so if you take that as face value and say this was a military operation, it was it would be a massacre by military terms. You know, if you talk about the deliberate massacre of civilians, taking of children as hostage, this all this all breaks every known convention. So even if you even if you were to take it on those terms, I guess I guess I suppose I just think that right when there's a complex backdrop to something, I just wonder if I don't understand why people can't just give it a day to just say, well, this was a fucking awful thing that's happened. But sadly in the world of social media, barely a day, barely minutes in some cases. And, and you do wonder, you know, like I just, I just don't know what it must be like to to see. And and I guess the point is about Hamas was the reason that so much of it was so gru- gru- uh, gruesome and and so widely videoed and shared is that you think strategically that must be part of the plan, right? Is to get outrage as high as possible, certain repercussions, maybe drawing a wider conflict in the region. I, I... Uh, well, I mean, I suppose one thing I'd say to that is that you have sort of suggested that there is a, a single military goal or a coordinated one. I would suspect that, for instance, there were people breaking through the fences, people marauding, killing, throwing uh, corpses in the back of pickup trucks who had a different idea about what was going on than there were uh, military strategists at the top of Hezbollah and and in Iran and so on. And um, always the difficulty with these situations, if if, you know, once you've expressed the, the horror and the sympathy is to try and attribute agency and try and understand who might have been in control of making a conscious, rational decision in in, in in a moment of tranquility about what they were doing. You know, it seems fairly obvious that, yes, if you go into Gaza after, what is it, uh, 17 years now of that being essentially, as, as some people have described it, you know, the world's largest open-air prison. Well, it's, it's an emotive term, but you can see why it attracts that description. If If you were to go into that, environment with a huge new influx of weapons and and um, military you know anti-israeli intelligence and so on and and the the uh, traditional means by which you radicalize you know you can see that it's obviously a tinder it's 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 ready to blow right it's not hard to find people who will behave like that so then you say well the agency that has moved to yeah, to Iran or to or to um, people who are not actually permanently living in that space, you know, and um, and they are they are triggering that that reaction and they are causing that outrage, whether they are whether or not they are morally entitled to do so because of the treatment of the people in Gaza. It seems much more likely if they are doing that and they don't live in Gaza themselves, they're doing it in order to destabilize the process of normalization of relationships, right? The Abraham Accords and so on. So. Yes, they are trying to provoke a reaction. They're trying to provoke uh, what would be seen by the world neutrally as an overreaction. They're trying to provoke Israel into retaliating with such devastating force that Saudi Arabia is forced to withdraw its normalization and da 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 da. You know, I mean, I to be honest, as you get older, I start to begin to wonder whether there is such a thing as cause and effect in the world, or whether it's all just been horribly inevitable from the. You know, I don't even know how mm. far back you have to go to find the opportunity for anyone to have done otherwise. But 
you know, one just feels helpless, you know, and just extraordinarily grateful not to have been born into that part of the world. Yeah, I mean, that was that was that was one thing I was just thinking, like the moment it happened, I was thinking about, you know, Jewish friends that would, you know, inevitably have some, you know, not inevitably rather, but they would likely have some sort of connections, you know, people that were there on, on gap years, you know, um, relatives and stuff. And then thinking about the likely reprisals and what it would mean for those people, right? So that that just feels like unless you're a, like a, a a regime or a government, you're allowed to have that reaction, and yet the world of social media, I guess, and it's not you know people out in the real world, but suddenly there's that odd thing where people have to start talking like they're the UN ambassador for something. But I think it's okay to just be a fucking human being that sees an awful thing and feels bad about that. And I guess you know some people say we don't see as many of the images. Um, of, of what's happening um, to you know Muslims in the Middle East, and that's true. I don't see as many of those things. I think the reason that we saw as many of these things is because they were videoed by the people doing them. That's one of the reasons. You you rarely in a moment of chaos and bloodshed like that. So 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 they wanted us to see this. I would just mention one thing that I think is worth observing a distinction, which was made by my friend David Paxton on Twitter, who said that. In any, when when Israel commits an atrocity, when when Jews, specifically Israel, commit an atrocity in the Gaza or elsewhere, the police in this country are alerted and warned to watch out for reprisals taken against Jews in this country. When an atrocity is committed against Jews in Israel, the police are told to watch out for essentially copycat killings and acts of violence against mm. Jews in this country. And that doesn't happen to anybody else. If Israel do something bad, the police are warned that there may be reprisals taken against British Jews. If something bad is done to Israel, police are warned that something bad may happen to British Jews. That's, that's, that's a, really a significant distinction, you know, and... Um, you know, and it plays, it, it harmonises, it works along the grain with the well-known clip that Sam Harris, you know, recorded in 2014, drawing a distinction between Israel and its neighbours, one which may no longer apply after so many years of, of um, the barricade. I don't know. But um, I mean, there's very little doubt that Netanyahu has pursued ever more hardline right wing policies. And um, I know many Jews in this country who are very uncomfortable with, mm. you know, with the regime he's been pursuing there. Um you know, what can you say? People only ever double down in times like this, right? OK, we're just going to finish with a letter here, and I hope you'll appreciate that this may sound like a one-show-style transition yeah. from and the most serious of subjects, but um, That's I've got a letter. <laughs> yeah, I mean that. That's life. Actually, don't get enough credit for doing that. Yeah. What's his name? <laughs> Doc Cox, the guy that used yeah, to help yeah. present that. Yeah. Who was the other guy? Yeah, that was head of its time. That's life. Um, we've got a, a letter here from Peter. So he's been listening to the audio book version of my latest book. By the way, if you want a really high chance of me reading out the letter, just mention my audio book because it gives me a chance to mention my audio book. But I think he, he makes a good point here. So one of the things I was talking about was about how a lot of your standard blokes will not like the experience of pampering, even the word of being... If you're, if you're for a woman a day off, you say, would you like to get pampered? There'll be a lot of women that will say, oh, it's like heaven. You know, I, the, it just fucking stresses me out. You know, like... It, I, I don't understand the need to sort of sit and have your nails filed or your face steamed. All of this stuff just doesn't appeal to me. And I was talking about how I don't like getting a massage because, firstly, when you face down on that thing, you know, when you face down with your with your your face looking through the open bit, the the circle to the floor, it does feel a bit like a submission position. I, I feel <laughs> I feel I feel vulnerable. And another thing I said was like the, the 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 concern, the anxiety about getting an erection. Because for a lot of blokes, the only time that you ever massage or are massaged is is as a prelude to sex, right? So being able to suddenly fucking disso dissociate those things uh, can be tricky. So Peter says um, I have a technique for this, which came in handy when I was having some physio done on my upper leg. Uh, and he says I just think about Margaret Thatcher. That does it for me. I mean, that phrase, that does it, think about Margaret Thatcher, that does it for me, could also mean the exact fucking opposite, depending on, on, on who you're asking. You know what the old-fashioned Tories are like for a strong matriarch? Um, 
I suppose, yeah, what he's saying is, do, do, first up, do you, do you suffer the erection anxiety when you're getting massages? I really enjoy a massage, but I'll be honest with you, it is quite a good idea to, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> prepare yourself beforehand before you go. I think that's usually safest. Um, I, I, I don't, pampering is like, I mean, it's a loaded word, isn't it? It basically means made weak through luxury. You know, it's something that happens to, you know, societies <laughs> and emperors and stuff. Just having a, a massage, I can think of as, is, is a really, it's a proper treat. I like it very much. I think if you have a good one, it's about as good use of, of like disposable income as there is. But yeah, it can mm. be awkward, obviously, if you get, you get the stiffy, but, uh, but I think it's fairly rare, to be honest. But then again, I am 58, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing you can do is is you can reinforce the groin area with towels so that were it yeah, to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if, if women are aware of this, because, I mean, I understand that it sounds a bit groy. It's not. I think one thing that women misunderstand about erections is that they misbehave as well. They're oh, not yeah. really always exactly what you want to happen. Wicked willy, you know, uh, long-running uh, <laughs> cartoon strip based on the... The idea that a man has two separate brains, a bit like Stegosaurus, you know. <laughs> well, I've always thought of it, and I said this in the book, like on the one hand, it is like autopilot, but just like actual autopilot, the real pilot should be on hand and sober to take charge should turbulence occur. Yeah, I think there's also, the funny thing with, with uh, massages is that you learn there are one or two, I suppose you would call them erogenous zones, but they might not be necessarily where you expect them to be. You know, it's not always just when you get in the yeah. inner thigh work, you know, there's one or two little pressure points. So you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I realise indirectly here, and and um, Colin actually makes this point, in, the, in, in talking about the, we're indirectly talking about the shagability of a public female. So obviously with recent history, perhaps... <laughs> I don't know if this this drifts into the realm of historical whether whether or not it's different. I suppose the point is is that I can make this I can make this a progressive point because what we're trying to do is avoid the situation where we get erections in public. I mean, it is it is I suppose it's the old thing. It's not a, a new concept, is it? People say, "Oh, you think of your nan." The problem is, if you think of your nan and that doesn't resolve the problem, you've got a whole new fucking problem, really, haven't you? <laughs> I've never thought. I've never found being able to think of anyone or anything else does it does any good exactly in that way. You know, all you do is start associating them with what you're feeling. Margaret Thatcher was uh, famously, I think it was Alan Clark, wasn't it, of Diaries fame, who hmm. said she had a very finely turned ankle, so a surprisingly powerful <laughs> erotic charge. Who was it who got her to spank him? Was it uh, Christopher Hitchens? I think was spanked by Margaret Thatcher at a yeah. I, I gotta say. I think that Margaret Thatcher is possibly the the wrong thing. Maybe just think of the most boring thing, like think of creosote in the fence, or I, I guess just think of a, a, an administrative... No, you know what? Think of something that fucking annoys you, right? Here's one. Think of going through the process of booking accommodation for a holiday online that boots you out at the last minute. That is... I, there you go. There, there's a boner killer for, for all time. And listen, uh, Simon Evans, obviously people should give you a follow. Watch all the good work that you're doing on GB News Headliners and the tour. Uh, new look out for the tour dates in the autumn and the ones coming up uh, in the spring. And thanks very much uh, for appearing once again on What Most People Think. Pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me, mate. Take care.